Welcome everybody. Today we get to start a brand new sermon series we're calling Then, Now, and Next. There's a then, a now, and a next to everything in the kingdom of God. And we're talking particularly over the next several weeks about God's people. We call them the church. There's the big C church, the little C church. But right now, uh, we're going to take a look back at people of old. Then we're going to take a brief walk through church history every single week. Then we're going to look at where we are now and where we're going in the future. So my hope is that by the time this is done, we can talk about, answer some questions that you might have about the church. So for instance, we might ask, what is the church? Okay, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk why, about why it matters. And we're going to talk about where you fit in, where I fit in, and how God put all of it together. So there are two kinds of church. You'll hear me use the word church in different ways over the course of the series. There's big C church, if you will. And that means anybody who follows Jesus Christ anywhere, anywhere in the world. These are people who have made a commitment that Jesus is Lord and that they're going to follow him with their lives. And then when I, I might use it in the little C sense, and that means kind of the way we often use it here uh, in the United States, which is to refer to those little local outposts of the big C church. So remember, you got big C and then you got little C. So as we talk about the church and about our place in it, about why it matters and about what, how you might be able to fit into that, just remember that we might be using either one of those and hopefully it'll be clear which one I'm using at the time. Today, I wanna to begin with this particular picture of the church and it's this, we are the people of faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 39 through chapter 11, verse two, it says this, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now he says that's what the ancients were commended for. He's saying in essence, our family history, our church family history is a proud one. It's one that is a history of great faith. People who are willing to go ahead and follow wherever God wanted them to go, whatever the cost. And we fall into that lineage. And he's trying to do that because when he's writing this letter to the Hebrews, he, they are, they're fatigued, they're tired, they're sad, they're depressed because it seems like no matter how hard they try, they're losing. People are persecuting them. They're shaming them. They're making them feel bad. People are deserting the church. People are taking off and spinning out and doing all of these different things. And he says, hey, 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 listen, we are not people who, who shy away from what God has called us to do. And in fact, there is a long history of within our spiritual heritage of people who have gone the extra mile, who have gone places that ordinary people won't go simply because they have faith in what God was doing. We are the people of faith. And so then he goes on this big long, all the way through Hebrews chapter 11, he lists off person after person after person of what you might call the heroes of faith. It's like a hall of fame of spiritual heroes and they're all commended for their faith. And as he introduces each single person, he says, by faith, so-and-so did such and such. So faith is kind of the headline that they're being commended because they were faithful. They continued to follow Jesus wherever God led them. So he rattles off a whole list of names, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And he does that because he wants them, and I think by translation us as well, to see ourselves as part of that lineage. 
He wants us to find our place in that story. He wants us to know that other people had faced adversity. Other people have faced difficult circumstances, been asked to do things that went beyond the normal call of duty, so to speak, and that God was found faithful and that God found them faithful, even if at the time they, didn't, they weren't perceived as victorious in what they were doing. Why is he doing this? Because they were starting to waver. They were starting to desert the faith altogether. They were deserting their fellow believers because of just sheer discouragement. Why? Because it just felt like they were losing. So he goes through and he walks them through these stories and he highlights the word faith. I'll pick just one example out from his list. I'm going to take Joshua. You may remember that God had promised Israel that he was going to give them this land flowing with milk and honey, and that after he delivered them from Egypt, that he was going to take them into this land. So Joshua and the people, Moses has just died, and he tells Joshua, hey, the time is here. Get ready. And so Joshua, they look at this land that they're getting ready to go into, and they know they have a battle coming. They know the walls are thick and the walls are tall, and they know the army on the other side is somebody formidable. They're not somebody that you just roll over. So Joshua goes, okay, and I'm sure he's thinking to himself, okay, should I get the chariots? Should I get the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the swords and the fireballs and the cannonballs and everything? What should I get? And God says, actually, you don't need to bring anything except the Ark of the Covenant. Well, do you want us to yell? you want us to act like we're mad? Actually, no, I want you to be quiet. Don't say anything. Just march around the wall one time each day in total silence, then go back to your tent. On the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. And when you do, when I give you the cue, then you make all your noise. And the walls are just going to fall down. Now, I want you to picture being Joshua. You look at the walls. You look at the armies on the other side. You start thinking about things. And I got it. Okay. Let, so you want me basically, you don't want me bringing a chariot or a sword or a shield or anything like that at the moment. You want me to just go walk around the wall quietly. You don't want us to intimidate them. Uh, you don't want us to, uh, I don't know, what, what they did in those days, write them a bully note. What, what, what do you want us to do? I want you to walk around the wall in silence. Take the Ark with you, the Ark of the Covenant, and march. And on day seven, when you get around that seventh turn, I will then let you know what to do. So picture Joshua at that moment. The faith that it takes... To not, first of all, try and take matters into your own hands and do it your own way. Because if I'm him, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But sure enough, as he does it, they go ahead and they march around on the 7th with a great shout. The trumpet blows, down come the walls, and God's people enter in. But there was that interim period, okay, that, that Joshua had to decide, am I going to trust God? Am I going to have faith? Or am I going to continue to do it my own way? Now, what faith does, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's having confidence in what you hope for, but you can't see. So it reminds me a little bit of those people who try to get you to try everything. You know those people, those people that you're at a, uh, I don't know, you're at a social event of some kind, they're serving appetizers or hors d'oeuvres, and no matter who they are, they can't just eat their food and leave you alone. They have to get you to try to try everything that they're eating. Now, some people like that, uh, they come up to me or whatever. If I really trust them, if it's like my wife or somebody like that, I might consider trying it. But if you're going to try to get me to try it, and I don't, A, don't know you, B, you have given me things to try in the past that tasted abominable, uh, C, 
uh, if I have no idea where you got the food that you're trying to get me to try, then I'm not going to do it. Some people do that with movies. Oh man, you got to see this. Oh, if only you saw this. And that, that's how they do it. They just try to pass that on. And well, my ability or desire to want to try whatever it is they're offering me has a lot to do with the person who's asking me to try it. What Joshua does, he does because of his faith in God. So when God says, I want you to this is a big try this. Hey, get the whole country together, march around the wall one time each day for six days. And on the seventh, do it seven times, and then I'll tell you what to do, and you, you shout, and the walls will come down. He's saying try it, and Joshua does it because he has his faith in God. He will do whatever it is that God calls him to do. Noah, by faith, built the ark. Moses, by faith, parted the Red Sea. On and on and on the list goes. So then one of the points that's being made in Hebrews 11, is that our willingness to continue to do what God wants us to do is a reflection of who we believe God to be. So I, when I'm living out the faith, uh, my willingness to keep stepping forward, keep doing what God asked me to do, says more, not just about, uh, you know, doesn't say as much about God himself. It says, it says a lot about my faith in God, because the writer of Hebrews would say, God is faithful, he is worthy, he's faithful, he's trustworthy. But your unwillingness to continue to persevere, because even though God is calling you to do it, says a lot about who it is you think is offering this calling to you. So he keeps going. He goes, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of the lions, this is big stuff, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, and they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Hmm. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. You want to underline that in your Bible. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Now, what he says there is pretty interesting. He says, you know what? I don't have enough time to tell you about all the great people that have been part of this lineage. So he, he rattles off instead the categories, different ways that, that people have expressed their faith in God. They shut the mouths of the lions. They uh, were sawn in two. There, was a whole, there are a whole bunch of of stories and the writer saying I don't have enough time to tell you it reminds me of if, if I'm ever sitting with somebody who's just lost a loved one and you say for instance tell me about your husband or tell me about your son or your child that just passed away they can try but you really can't ever communicate the full breadth of who that person was the writer of Hebrews is looking at this long list of people who are faithful to the gospel and he sees in it the, the lack of time, kind of almost like a, you know, I, I, I could try, but I just, 
look, these people were this and they, and they were this and this and this and this. And he keeps going down the list. And he does that because he wants us to be able to say, that's who you are. That's your family history, Christian. That's your family history. You are the people of faith. So let me add, that's the then. Let's move a little closer to the now, beyond the New Testament. I want to introduce you to two young women. Their names are Perpetua and Felicitas. And I want to take you back to the year 203 AD in Carthage. There's a young woman by the name of Perpetua. She's 22 years old. She has a handmaiden by the name of Felicitas. Perpetua is wealthy, um, but they come, the Romans were very persnickety about anybody worshiping Jesus at that particular time. And so they were told to recant their faith in Jesus or they would be put to death. She refuses. Now keep in mind that at the time Perpetua uh, was pregnant, Felicitas actually ends up being, becoming pregnant and giving birth as well. So it's not like she's just on her own. But by everything that we know about these two, they are just the epitome of graciousness. They are kind. They are gentle. They are revered by the people around them. Felicitas actually came to Christ in Perpetua's home. So Perpetua was such a light that Felicitas, her handmaiden, actually uh, comes to Jesus through her influence. So during that time, um, Felicitas was eight months pregnant and was praying that after they're arrested, they're both in jail. Perpetua already has a child. Felicitas is pregnant, eight months pregnant with child, and prays that maybe, maybe, maybe that child will be given the opportunity to live um, so that she could be martyred side by side with Perpetua. Now, let me get, rewind the tape and say that again so you make sure you get it. She wanted to make sure, because they wouldn't do it if she was pregnant, that she wanted to have her child so that Perpetua wouldn't have to be put to the sword by herself. The Lord answered that prayer, and she gave birth to her son in prison. The Romans at that time were still trying to get them to recant and couldn't do it, so they brought in the big guns. They bring in her family, and they say, uh, her father, and they say, hey. And, and he literally, according to the journals, holds up the child and says, for the sake of this child, go ahead and recant. And she refuses. The Romans, being who they are, then take her father and flog him for failing to get her to recant. So, Perpetua has her father pleading on behalf of the whole family. Felicity or Felicitas has her family pleading on her behalf. And so she gives her child into the hands of another Christian so that they can be raised in the way of the Lord. And then, just for measure, the jailers, real class acts, they, while Felicitas is giving birth and in the throes of childbirth, it says that one of them mocks her, mocks Felicitas while she's screaming in childbirth and says this, if you are wailing at childbirth, how are you going to endure the pain of the Colosseum? And she has this wonderful retort, which basically says, right now I'm screaming, but when I'm in the Colosseum, there'll be one inside me who's in pain. And what she meant was that Jesus would be with her in the Colosseum, helping her bear the pain with her. On the night before, the prisoners all get together. There's 12 of them, Perpetua and Felicitas are two of the 12. And they celebrate what you might call an agape feast, which is very similar to communion. Then approaching the arena, Perpetua sings psalms. She faces uh, the beasts in the power of the spirit and in ecstasy. She joins a companion there. 
uh, whose bloody slaying was accompanied by the crowd mocking this. They would say, saved and washed, saved and washed. The crowd is chanting this, which is a mocking way of talking about uh, the claims of, of baptism. So the day of their martyrdom comes. And they're brought into the arena, just as they were. Perpetua then begins to sing a psalm. The journal says that she was already treading on the head of the dragon. So then there are others, and they begin to warn the onlooking mob. But when they come into motion there, into the proximity of those folks, they say, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you, which is what they were saying. So at this, the crowds become enraged, and they start demanding that they're scourged before a line of gladiators. And so everybody, all 12 of them at the time, remember there's Perpetua and Felicitas, but also 10 others that are there in the arena, they all rejoiced that they had obtained a share of the Lord's suffering, it says. For the young women, however, the journalist says, the devil had prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual animal, but it was chosen so that their gender might be matched with that of the beast. So that they were stripped then, Perpetua and Felicitas, placed in nets and brought out into the arena. But even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth with milk still dripping from her breasts. So they were brought back again and they were dressed in unbelted tunics. First the heifer tossed Perpetua and she fell on her back. Then sitting up, she pulled down the tunic that was ripped along the side so that it covered her thighs, thinking more of her modesty than of her pain. Next, she asked for a pin to fasten her untidy hair, for it was not right that a martyr should die with hair in disorder, lest she might seem to be in mourning in her hour of triumph. And then she got up, and seeing that Felicitas, a Christian slave girl also facing the beast, had been crushed to the ground, she went over to her and gave her her hand and lifted her up, and the two stood side by side. But the cruelty of the mob was now appeased, and so they were called back through the gate of life. Perpetua was put through some more before she guided the hand of a gladiator with a sword in hand toward her throat. And with that, they went to go meet their glory. So when you hear again Hebrews 11 talking, I mean, there have been great laity throughout history. But God gauges success in a different way than the world does. The world says, you're a winner if things always turn out well for you. God says, you're a winner if you walk in obedience to what I guide you to do. You're a winner if you, for lack of a better term, follow well, if you walk by faith rather than by sight. Hebrews 12, 1 to 12, 3 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, keep in mind right here, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, everything that entangles, and let us run, okay, and perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the picture we're given here is that we're running the final leg of a great race. But the struggle is going to continue. It's going to continue until God pulls the curtain down on all this we're living through right now, until, until it's time for us to go be with our Lord. The 20th century produced more martyrs than all the previous centuries combined. The struggle continues to this very day. 
Most of us aren't going to be called to suffer and die. We're not going to be called to do those kinds of things. But our faithfulness still, in whatever aspect of life, whether it's just living a, a quote-unquote normal life as if there is such a thing, that, that if it's just being a faithful parent or a faithful spouse or a faithful uh, young adult, a faithful uh, son of, of Jesus, you know, as we go through our average daily life, we're supposed to be willing to go wherever he leads us to go, be willing to live dangerously if he calls us to do it in a very dangerous world, and certainly a world that can be very dangerous for people who are walking by faith. We are not, if you will, a dome team. And that's a football term for people who only play indoors. They don't play outside in the elements. A way of saying the team is soft. We're not a dome team that can't handle the elements. We live our lives in the imitation of one who lived a sinless life and died on a cross for the sins of the world. That's why it says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. Well, this is a story of God's people we're reading in Hebrews and in church history. And then we're, we're finding our place in it. Those names that you read in Hebrews 11, those are, those are our family. That's who we are. That's our spiritual lineage. Because we have the same Father and the same Savior, that we're all children of Abraham in the eyes of the gospel. God wants us to know the same Spirit who gave them faith, the same God who parted the sea, who obliterated the walls of Jericho, that that God still works in the world and still works in the lives of His people, guiding and protecting. And now we're running this race with them in the stands. I love that picture, the cloud of witnesses. And consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. That Jesus is sitting there in the stands as we're running this final leg of the race. He goes, who's in the stands makes all the difference. Right now, Major League Baseball, the NBA, they're playing in empty buildings. They're used to hearing screams from fans, and they're not hearing it right now. Now, we hear it on our end because they're piping in fake noise. But if you're an NBA player and you're in the playoffs, it's got to feel a little bit weird to be in a big arena playing against the top athletes in the world with nobody watching. Last night, my beloved Padres won the game in the last inning. No one was there live to hear it. I got to imagine it was a little bit strange to hear the siren go off, the explosion of the fireworks with nobody there. Do you think it matters? Do you think it's different if you have 50,000 screaming fans in a ballpark screaming as that happens versus complete silence around you as it's going on, like you were at practice or something? Of course it matters. And what he's trying to say is right now, right now, as you and I run this race, as long as we're continuing to walk by faith, as long as we're doing what we're put on this earth to do, we are running this great final leg of the race and the people up, it's not a cardboard cutout of Joshua or a cardboard cutout of, of Moses, but that they're actually there. This cloud of witnesses is there watching us as we run this race. Who's in the stands? Makes all the difference when you're running the race. I mean, <laughs> we put cardboard cutouts there to make it look good for the cameras. But we need real people brothers, sisters, people around us as we run, as we run the race. When somebody gets hurt, I can lift them up and help them finish. The answer, the call 
from the stands, the call of those who've gone before us and the call of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who went all the way to the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we consider him so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We are the people of faith. We're the people of faith. That's who we are. So when things get difficult, during difficult times like the ones we're living in, difficult eras, difficult times for the church, times when, when things are difficult, it's hard to be the church in the world that you're living in, we go back and we remember the then and the now as we head toward the next. God has a great future plan for our church, and it begins, though, with continuing to walk by faith. The things our church has been a part of over the last several, really couple years plus, even going back to when we first started, have been an example of walking by faith, not by sight, but continuing to persevere, continuing to follow the leading of God until that moment when he says, all right, it's time for the walls to fall down. I'm getting ready to do what I promised. So with that in mind, whatever you're, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you with those words. I want to encourage you to continue to walk by faith, walk by faith, to be sure of what God has promised you, to be sure that God has pointed you in the right direction when he pointed you toward his son, that when he pointed you toward Jesus, it was the greatest thing he ever did, and to continue to walk in that way, even if you feel apathetic, even if you feel tired, even if you feel like you don't want to do it anymore, even if you feel like, I'm not sure where this leads, keep walking by faith, because that's who we are. This time, I want to gather around the Lord's table with you. And I want to read this text again as a prayer uh, as we gather around the Lord's table. We'll take the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The, the cup represents his blood. So as we remember those great heroes of faith and we remember the perpetuas and the felicitous, uh, the felicitai or whatever among us, um, let's walk humbly with God and allow that legacy and those in the stands, allow ourselves to hear, hear their voices. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, throw it off. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us pray. Father, right now we consider him. We invite him. We welcome him to this table. And we say in our gathering that we are a part of the family of God, that we are a part of the people of faith. And we ask, Father, that you strengthen us by the power of your spirit to be who you want us to be in this time and in this place. No matter how difficult it gets, Father, help us to walk by faith. And whether that means victory here on earth or not, Father, help us to continue to walk by faith. Here today, Father, we pledge our faith to you. And we say thank you, Father, for inviting us into this great story, the then, the now, and the next. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.